Hey, Will. Hey, John. I have something to talk to you about. Oh, sounds good to me. Hey, shouldn't we wait to talk this over with our new co-host, Abby Ochesi, who's now been on the show officially for three weeks? Yeah, sure. But see, okay, I have a fun idea for this week's podcast. Oh, sounds good to me. Hey, shouldn't we wait to talk this over with our new co-host, Abby Ochesi, who's been on the show? Yeah, I, I get it. Well, but see, here's the thing. My idea, is, it's it's about Abby. Oh, sounds good to me. Hey, shouldn't we? Well, stop. Okay. It's a prank. We're going to prank Abby Olchesi. A prank? On Abby Olchesi? Who's out on the show for- Yes, Will, a prank. Gosh, John, I don't know about this. Abby's not only our new co-host who's been on the show for officially for three weeks, she's also our acquaintance. Exactly, Will. That's the point. We need to show Abby she's part of the gang, right? So to do that, we need to put her through a good old-fashioned hazing ritual, like they do in college. But John- we haven't been to college since the time you faked our credentials so we could be college professors for a day and teach an entire classroom of impressionable film students that all the Pixar movies exist in the same universe as every single David Cronenberg movie. I know, Will, but this time we're not going to get accidentally drunk and eventually banned from the state of Massachusetts. Now we're just going to do a harmless prank on Abby. We're going to make her think that Cinemaholics has been canceled. Canceled? As in culturally canceled? John, how is that even possible? Simple. I made a bunch of fake Twitter accounts with fake tweets. We're going to show them to Abby, and once she sees the show's been effectively dragged, we'll yell surprise and show her the Russian app we use to create all the bots. It's foolproof. I don't know, John. This whole thing sounds sketchy, wrong, and unkind. Especially Abby Olchesi, our new co-host, has been on the show. R relax, Will. It'll be fine. Okay, there she is, Will. Just be cool and remember what we rehearsed. <sighs> Okay, John, whatever you say. Hey, guys, ready to do the show? I have all kinds of ideas to boost our downloads, bring on high-profile guests, and... Yeah, yeah, sure, we can do all that stuff later and definitely not forget about it. But for now, Abby, we have some <laughs> interesting news to share with you. Oh, wow. Well, before you get into all that, I have some news for you two as well. Take a look at this. Is that, is that a new logo for the show? And hey, there's another logo in the bottom corner. Is that? No, that's not. That's right. It's the R for the Ringer Podcast Network. We got bought by the Ringer. The Ringer? How did this happen? Will, Will did you know about this? Uh, yeah, John, actually I did. Abby and I discussed it last week after she had officially been our new co-host for two weeks. We figured it would be the best way to bring on a ton of new listeners without actually working hard. Yep. And here's the best part, John. Not only will Liz Kelly greet our listeners almost every single week, now we can talk about more than just movies. We're also contractually obligated to also talk about basketball. The only weird thing is that for the most part, we have to pretend that movies before the late 1970s never happened. This is ridiculous. I, I love Cinemaholics just how it is. Come on, is it too late to change it? How did how did this happen? I mean, wait, this doesn't mean I don't have to, I don't have to talk about movies with Sean Fennessy, do I? <laughs> wait, wait a second abby will is this yeah that's right nerd we pranked you negroni ah uh, you two pranked me but you're our new co-host who's been on the show for three weeks will ashen i swear to god <laughs> calm down john you're scaring us again will and i just thought this would be a fun way to remind you what's so great about cinemaholics that it's not owned by bill simmons exactly
Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. From the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm John Negroni, box office columnist for Adam Tickets and editor-in-chief of Cinemaholics.com. And from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he also reviews films for Cinemaholics. It's Will Ashton. That's right. Hello. From Kansas City, she is the film editor for The Pitch. She has bylines from Slash Film to Crooked Marquee, and she's officially been our co-host for three weeks. It's Abiel Chessie. Hi, thanks for having me back and letting me stay. Yes, <laughs> that, that is an easy decision on our part. We have a great show for all of you listeners this week. We're going to be reviewing The Devil All the Time, The Nest, Antebellum, and more. And before we get into that, of course, you can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive and written reviews on cinemaholics.com. You can write into the show anytime by sending us an email, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also leave us a voicemail on the Swell app. Details for that are in the show notes, and we'll be playing a voicemail later in the show. And last, you can become one of our monthly supporters on patreon.com slash cinemaholics. And guess what? If you're already a patron, or you're about to be, we have some new exclusive perks for you all. So let's transition into off topics. We have a new exclusive podcast series only for patrons, although... The first episode is free. You can check out the first episode right now, if even if you're not a patron. But hosts Sam Nolan and Adonis Gonzalez, two regular cinemaholics, they have started a new series called Game Over Man. And they just released the first episode talking about the 1979 Ridley Scott film Alien. This podcast series is them reviewing and discussing every single Alien and Predator movie. And again, you can check out their first episode of that conversation on our website and in our patreon link in the show notes of course and this should be a lot of fun mainly because it's sam and adonis if you don't know sam and adonis have been uh, podcast friends for many years <laughs> i said many years like five years and they uh they're if you are interested in tangents and infectious dialogue two friends talking about some really great stuff then you should definitely check that out and if you haven't gotten your Sam Nolan fix already. He's also the host of our Extra Milestone podcast series on this feed. And this week they talked about The Night of the Hunter, which came out in 1955, and Airplane, which came out in 1980. Those two films just recently celebrated film anniversaries. So Sam Nolan brought on guest Robert Wilkinson to talk about both. And as always, pretty good conversation. Here's what else is going on around the Cinemaholics universe. Will, you have been hard at work at the at the uh, Toronto International Film Festival, TIFF. Uh, some reviews are on the site right now and thought we'd do a little check-in. How Now that the it seems like the festival is over at this point, uh, we'll probably uh, do a separate yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, eventually at some point this week or maybe next week, I want to have a bonus recap episode kind of similar to what you've done throughout the years when you go to Sundance, uh, where uh, you and Abby or one or both of us will have a chance just kind of talk about what I've seen and how I felt about it. And then just kind of covering what was available at the festival, just the experience itself as well. I thought it was really interesting just from a kind of surreal standpoint of just being at a festival, but like not being at the festival at the same time, it's a very 2020 experience, but uh, I am very excited to talk about some of the movies that I have seen there. Cause I've only really gotten to talk about a few on the site, but a lot of the big ones I haven't even covered yet. So I'm really excited to share my thoughts on those ones. Can't wait to find out what is the best of the fest. So yeah, like Will said, we'll probably have that bonus episode out later this week, hopefully sooner rather than later, but we'll have to finagle that together. Uh, also, I I have something to tell you, Abby Olchessy. 
you were 100% right about Lovecraft Country, which is now on HBO and slash HBO Max. I have watched the first five episodes this week. I've been listening to the Lovecraft Country radio podcast, and I am the biggest fan. Thank you so much for recommending it because it is awesome. You're welcome. I'm glad you've been enjoying it. Yeah, I don't want to go into detail or anything like that. I just want to tell the listeners that uh, I highly recommend this show. It is fascinating and it's so strange. And I really have to echo that idea that every episode feels like an entire season of a TV show with its own season finale right there. <laughs> and uh, it's it's addicting. I, I watched all five episodes over the course of less than two days. And that was me forcing myself not to just watch it all at once because I wanted to savor once I realized I was running out of episodes. But yeah, Lovecraft Country. Hopefully we're going to be checking out uh, episode six uh, today because we're recording on Sunday. And then also uh, Challenger Final Flight just came out on Netflix, the limited documentary series. I I watched uh, the four episodes of this. And uh, I think, Abby, Will, you haven't checked it out. Do you plan on seeing this documentary series, either of you? Uh, I didn't really know about it. You said it's on Netflix? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious. Uh, is it good? Well, I was going to mention, yeah, it's, uh, I, I you know, don't want to go into too much detail on this one either, but it is a documentary about the Challenger shuttle disaster in 1986. And I thought it was pretty interesting. It's kind of about how it happened and kind of the attempted cover up. And something I like about it is that it sort of takes some of the, it, it kind of a, a, analyzes what was wrong with NASA around this time and maybe in the periphery as well. It's not a romanticizing of the space program like we've seen in a lot of documentaries. Like it's not Apollo 11, for example. And I appreciated it on that front. You get to hear from the families of the the victims of that disaster. And the final episode is probably the most interesting just because it really gets into the people who allowed this to happen. And you have to, it's hard to watch because you have to listen to them to this day say, oh, I wouldn't, I don't feel guilty or I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing or like, I don't have any regrets. And like you, like clearly the documentary lays out that these people, this negligence and this bravado on their part led to the deaths of these people. And they're sitting there in front of their camera being like, oh, well, not my fault. And it's infuriating, (laughs) honestly, but it's good to, it's good to watch because like I watched a documentary about the challenger when I was in school. I don't know if you, either of you sort of caught it maybe in school or the history channel, but, and I've always gotten this picture of it, that it was such an accident, right? That nobody could have prevented it or it was uh, just, Oh, oops, we, we messed up the O-rings and, and this is what happened. But this documentary is like, no, there were a lot of people putting the warning bells out there and they show the proof of this. Uh, it's a great documentary series to watch in that vein because it really covers in detail what happened. I think four episodes is just the right amount, so I do recommend it. It's on Netflix right now, and uh, I, I'm i a fan. I, I'm a fan, but I don't think it's like the greatest documentary in the world in terms of the filmmaking or anything. It's it's kind of like a solid B minus B, but in terms of like what it does for educating people on the details of this event and the people involved, I think it is pretty useful uh, as far as documentaries go. So that's Challenger Final Flight. Before we get into our reviews, we do have a voicemail and uh, we asked the listeners this week on the Swell app. All right. Tom Holland, his new movie, The Devil All the Time, is now coming out on Netflix. We're going to be talking about that in our featured review, of course. And so we asked the listeners, what film genre, which film genre should Tom Holland do next and we should probably say like right now like the films he's already 
done. He's been in a lot. He's done biopics like in the current war. He's obviously done a lot of superhero and action films from Spider-Man to Avengers. He's done two animated films where he's a voice onward and spies in disguise. And he's kind of done like prestige films, right? Like devil all the time. Like we're talking about kind of this like crime epic. Um, uh, he's also done lost city of Zed, right? These period pieces. Now in terms of films he's, he's got coming up, he's got the action adventure film uncharted. He's got another crime sort of drama called cherry that he's doing with the Russo brothers. And then he's got the Charlie Kaufman film chaos walking kind of a surreal sci-fi film. So that's a lot of genres. There's not a ton he hasn't done yet. I mean, to be fair, I think that's more Doug Lyman than Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> I think Car- Charlie Kaufman just came on as like a rewrite, but I do uh, I do appreciate the idea of that is his project that he's working on. That's a fun idea. Yeah, yeah. I forgot to mention Doug Lyman, but sorry. So Doug Lyman and, and Charlie Kaufman are working on Chaos Walking. Yeah, I believe. Um, yeah, I mean Doug Lyman's been involved for a while, and I think Charlie Kaufman came in. I don't know for the reshoots or like some point to like fix up the script, but okay, he, that's so he is involved. But he's not like yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because that's a wild combination. So I'm yeah. I'm going to be very curious to check that out. Yeah. The film is in post-production, so it should be coming out next year. That said, we asked the listeners, all right, then what film genre should he do next, Tom Holland? And here is what Joe had to say. I guess the only thing left, right, is like a rom-com. Like, I don't, horror, if it's an intelligent horror, I could see him at this phase of his career doing an intelligent horror film, but not like a dopey slasher kind of thing. Nothing like that. So I'm thinking rom-com is where he goes next. Uh, but I think you're asking what I want him to do next. And yeah, you know, I think that's probably what I would want him to do next. Look, I'm, I'm not above a rom-com. I'm going to be honest. Uh, this is just between me and you now. Nobody else can hear this, (laughs) but if it's, if a rom-com's good, I'm good with it. You know, um, I watch everything. So as long as it's well done. So rom-com Tom Holland, that's what's up. That's what's next for you. All right, so rom-com or maybe an intelligent horror. Abby, what do you think? What would be uh, what, what's the film genre you would go with? Um, actually, I I was thinking horror. I'd like to see him do a straight horror, especially after uh, his performance in The Devil All the Time, which is not a horror movie but adjacent enough that I think he could probably bring a interesting, similar amount of of gravitas to something like that. But yeah, I agree. I'd I'd want it to be a fairly smart one. Um, I would imagine something along the lines of like Blumhouse or A24. Uh, But yeah, I think that could be fun. My first thought, and it's kind of similar to what the listener said, was like a screwball comedy. Because I feel like he's very good at being like befuddled and like kind of like in over his head just based on Spider-Man movies and different projects that he's taken on as an actor. So I feel like something like that where he's like kind of like a guy with like a screw loose who's just trying to keep everything in order with like a romantic love interest would fit him well. But um, I also joked before we recorded that he should do a Broadway musical. But the more I think about that, the more I'm like, you know what? Sure. You know what? I'd like to see him do a, a all full out big musical. So uh, if he can sing, I'd like to see that. Yeah. Ugh, dang it. Musical is what I was going to say. Still what? But no, that's the physicality of his. Yeah. The, just the presence he has in as an actor. I could see him be. Uh, incredible maybe in like a a new version of like the newsies for example and the christian bale role of that 90s film i could absolutely see him like hamming it up in like a 1920s kind of environment um because that's kind of his energy as an actor he's very like larger than life but then he can also be restrained when he needs to be so 
uh, great things are coming for Tom Holland, that's for sure. And uh, we'll we'll see what happens next. He's got a few films keeping him busy for the next few uh, next few years, really. Um, although he he was a, now that I think about it, he was in a musical at one point, Billy Elliot, the musical. But this was when he was much younger. This was like a decade ago. That was for the stage, I'm assuming. Yes. Okay. Um. So the, yeah, I think that might have been like where he got a start, in fact. But as many actors tend to do. But all right, enough about Tom Holland. Let's talk about Tom Holland in a new movie. We're going to talk about the devil all the time. Happy birthday, Happy Arlen. birthday, honey. Happy birthday to you. Well, this was your daddy's. Brought back from the war. Fears time to pass it on. It's the best present I ever got. Thank you. How and why people from two points on a map without even a straight line between them can be connected is at the heart of our story in Knock'em Stiff. You ever think about how we ended up orphans living in the same house? I know what my daddy did. The Devil All the Time is a new film on Netflix. It is a crime slash psychological thriller based on a novel of the same name by Donald Ray Pollock, who also narrates this film. Uh, Now, our written review of The Devil All the Time is currently on cinemahawks.com. Lizzie Combs reviewed the film, and she had some mixed things to say about it. She said a lot of the things that she liked. She pointed out some pretty glaring flaws, including a couple that I hadn't fully considered myself. Now, the film is directed and co-written by Antonio Campos, and this is kind of a family production. He co-wrote the film with his brother Paolo. Uh, His wife edited the film, Sophia Subrixo, I think that's how you say it. And their child is uh, young infant Arvin in the film, so a lot of personal touches in this movie. The ensemble cast is pretty stacked. Uh, of course, we have Tom Holland, also Bill Skarsgård, Riley Keough, Jason Clark, Sebastian Stan, Haley Bennett, Eliza Scanlon, Mia Wisikowska, and Robert Pattinson. And one thing that I said in my own review of the film on the spool is that I thought it was interesting how this film reminded me in a lot of ways of Lawless, which also has Jason Clark and Mia Wazakowska. As far as the plot goes, this is this is kind of an interesting one, and I'm not entirely sure how to even cover it. Um, so I, I'll turn it over to you, Abby. Um, how, how would you describe the plot of this one to somebody who is kind of going into this fresh? Maybe they see it on the Netflix landing screen. They see Tom Holland's face and they're like, I'm in. Okay. Deep breath. Um, it's, it is, it is kind of a hard one to explain concisely, but it is sort of a multi-generational, I guess, crime epic. Uh, it starts with Bill Skarsgård's character, who is a soldier in World War II in the Pacific, I think. And he comes back with a fair amount of undealt with PTSD and meets Haley Bennett, who's a waitress who he later marries. And uh, shortly after they get married, she gets cancer. They they have Arvin, their son, who grows up to be Tom Holland. So Bill Skarsgård's character, he develops a very particular and kind of frightening way of praying behind the house to try and heal his wife's cancer, which uh, doesn't work. She dies. And their son, Arvin, ends up going to live with his grandmother and uncle in Ohio. 
I think. They go from West Virginia yeah. to, oh no, sorry. They go from Ohio to West Virginia. Yeah. Yes. Coal Creek, West Virginia. We should say this is all very early in the film, like not yes, getting a yeah, lot of it happens. Here. <laughs> yeah. It happens very quickly. Also around the same time, Riley Keough's character, Sandy, she hooks up with Jason Clark's character, Carl, who is a photographer and also a budding serial killer. And the two of them end up having kind of a serial killer Bonnie and Clyde type relationship that goes throughout the film. Yeah, with like um, weird hints of necrophilia too. It's pretty nasty. Very weird hints of necrophilia. And so Arvin grows up alongside uh, Lenora, who's played by Eliza Scanlon, who is the ward of his grandmother and uncle. And you get a little bit more information on Lenora's backstory in the first half of the film as well. And their lives are okay, but disrupted by Robert Pattinson, who is a kind of itinerant preacher who has eyes for Lenora and kind of does wrong by their family. And Tom Holland takes it upon himself to try and enact revenge on Robert Pattinson. And that that turn also eventually brings him into contact with Sandy and Carl. So that is kind of the best way that I can try and concisely describe the plot. It's very sprawling and it covers a lot of ground. Uh, I personally kind of like the way that it approaches the story in the way that it does, but we can get into that a little bit more later. Yeah, that's one of the first things I do want to talk about, because even on top of that, we also have Sebastian Stan as a corrupt sheriff and his story is kind of connected to one person but it's also connected to Arvin and yeah you know in my review I compared this to like if you took a Tarantino film like um, as recent as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and you mashed it with Life Itself the 2018 film where it just seems it's almost a parody sometimes how these characters are connected I think the general idea that Pollock was going for in his book which is supposed to be a little bit more episodic but even in this movie which he clearly was happy with since he partook in it is that everybody in this area just like knows each other. And it's kind of about that. It's about how connected all of these people are. Uh, this is a very troubling area of the United States. You know, I've been to this area. I've, I've never been to Knockham Stiff, but I've been to um, this part of Ohio. I've been to West Virginia, obviously grew up in Virginia. And it, it what the period details are pretty impressive in that regard of like, you do understand that this story is very personal to the original author. So it is an interesting choice in campus to come in here and turn it into a film along with cinematographer Lal Crowley into something just really epic and uh, invigorating in a lot of ways. But okay, Will Ashton, I want to know what you generally think of this film and if you can key in a bit on kind of the sprawling nature of it. Did, did it work for you? This is a long film, 138 minutes. I know if, if a film, you if you don't like a film and it's that long, we could, we're looking at trouble. Um, well, admittedly, I've been watching quite a few long films, so it didn't the length didn't bother me as much as maybe the tone did. But uh, yeah, as far as the, the movie itself, I'm a big fan of Antonio Campos' style. And uh, one reason why is I feel like I, I really enjoy his like very specific type of character focus filmmaking, where it's like the style is a little bit drawn back and we just kind of fall into lives of different assorted characters but it's usually very centralized or singularized or singular i guess to uh one like specific person that he follows like with christine or in after school with uh, ezra miller and so yeah with those films like it, it does seem like he's a little bit more like keyed to one person whereas this one is an potential challenge he's definitely doing it as like an ensemble piece which i think is intriguing and inviting in a few curious ways like definitely agree with the sense of place and the like mood and general kind of like vibe and eeriness of it i really appreciate and i really like the like sense of locale as far as like the time and place but 
Um, as far as the movie itself and the narrative itself, I did really feel that like the narrative, because it is based on what seems to be a fairly sprawling book, I haven't read it, but it feels like there's a long text here that is being condensed down to like a little over two hours. And I do feel like we get the like bare bones of the story, but I never fully connected to a lot of the characters in a way that felt super meaningful. And I think that's because the story itself is so focused on like the like grief and the like despair and all like these like ter- terrible, horrific things that it feels kind of more like they are those things is to the point where it's like, I don't really get the full extent extent of their humanity. It just kind of feels like they're at the service of all these terrible things that are going on, which, you know, I get that's for the purpose of the story as far as what it's saying, but it does prevent me from fully connecting with it because it feels like at times, like it's going for a bleakness for the sake of being bleak, which I mean, I, I guess that's where I kind of go back and forth as far as like what I appreciate about the film and what I find myself kind of pushed away by. But I don't dislike it per se. I just, I guess I have similarly mixed feelings on it. I've seen this notion kind of floated around in some other reviews for the film. Particularly, I was, uh, Charlie originally kind of felt that same sentiment of that it's bleak for the sake of being bleak. I highly disagree. I highly disagree with that. I think that it's valid if people come out of it that way. I mean, it's not that I fully believe that, but yeah, I mean, it, at times, that's what I feel too clear. I, I do think Campbell's isn't trying to do that. And in my case, that's not how I came out of the film. I did not come out of it feeling like this was trying to oppress. I thought that it was trying to illustrate and then end on a very hopeful tune, which we can't get into without giving away certain things. But I do think that my my most generous reading of the film is that it is it is sort of educating on how to break out of cycles of violence you know we should point out that this movie takes place uh, i think we mentioned before but it's like in the middle of two wars right like abby mentioned the pacific theater of world war ii is what arvin's father goes through and then the vietnam war is kind of on the horizon because the film covers mainly the 40s 50s and then the 1960s i think what this film does really well i think where it gets me kind of connecting to it is that I don't want to connect to any of the characters except for Arvin and Lenora. And I think the film does succeed in getting me connected to them, uh, especially Arvin. Um, I am a little bothered by how the film treats its female characters. And I think that that's a, a big limitation because it that is something that does feel grim and it does feel um, over the top in a way that I don't think is as effective. And uh, it, it falls into some tropes in that way, like the fridging trope and, and all kinds of things we can get into. But I got to say, this film really worked for me. But what, what do you think, Abby, of uh, some of the criticisms and praisings flying around so far? Yeah, I, I understand, I think, where people are coming from when they say that the, uh, the amount of content in this story is uh, it kind of takes away from the character development in, in some places. I personally think that this would have worked really well as a miniseries and given uh, Antonio Campos's uh, style of filmmaking, I think probably would have allowed him to focus and like kind of drill down more on one character at a time Uh, because the characters that are in this are, there's so much going on and I would love to spend all kinds of time finding out like what makes each of them tick because really what we get is a, is a, a sketch, but it's a fascinating sketch and you know, that there's more going on. Um, I also appreciated the film for um, kind of its approach to uh, to storytelling patterns and uh, kind of patterns within the cycles of the lives of the characters, uh, which is a thing that I, I really appreciate, uh, especially when I critique movies from a faith based angle, because that's that's often how I look at spirituality, too. So uh, I thought it was super interesting to see all the patterns and the ways that uh, 
the characters' lives connected and um, how they related to each other, even in kind of tangential ways, and how we can be influenced by uh, the stories of people that we're directly related to, people who we encounter, and also experiences that we don't even encounter firsthand, and how that can kind of influence us long term. Um, so that was another thing that I really appreciated about about the film. Um, and aesthetically, I'm I'm a huge fan of uh, kind of. Appalachian, Ozarkian, Southern Gothic kinds of things. Um, rural Gothic, yeah, I guess, same. is the the <laughs> yeah. better description of that. Because um, I've heard the film described as Southern Gothic by some folks, and it's really not. It's it's set in Appalachia, which is a different culture. Um, so I would say rural Gothic is probably a better description of that. I've said Southern Gothic. I guess I'm a little bit more flexible with the term, but I see your point. Yeah, I think it's it's probably due more to kind of literary conventions, which I totally get. But the the regionalist in me is like, no, this is not uh, the South. This is <laughs> this is Appalachia. This is the Rust Belt. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like everyone is in a rural Gothic movie except for Robert Pattinson, who's in a Southern Gothic movie. <laughs> and I mean that oh, sure. Way, yeah. Like... No. Yeah. He's he's in a Southern Gothic movie, although yeah. around the time when the uh, the guy who runs the church is like my nephew who went to Bible college is coming. I was like, never trust a Bible college boy. Yeah. Uh, uh, but... yeah. <laughs> I, I will say as someone who grew up in Virginia, we we consider West Virginia more South than. Oh, sure. Virginia. And I, we were on like the Southwestern border. So even though it's literally not the case it is sort of a perception of the region so i could see why pollock and then by extension campos felt like that's the aesthetic to go for so even if it sure. is a little inaccurate yeah and i think it, it totally works too like that's an aesthetic that i i really enjoy uh i get kind of a murder ballad vibe throughout the entire thing um which is also kind of a fascinating area uh, also traditionally not super kind to women so i kind of understand where that's coming from too. But uh, I, I liked the style of it a lot. I liked uh, Donald Ray Pollock's narration an awful lot um, to the point where I actually just recently checked out another book of his from my local library because I want to read more of his things. Absolutely. I, I really want to focus in because I agree with you totally on the aesthetic of the film. I think Crowley is just a fantastic cinematographer and doesn't get enough credit. I, I have to say with when it comes to the religious stuff in this, I was concerned as the film started and I was like, okay, here we go. Like, I, I don't like it when films use religious imagery to sort of make the world feel black and white in terms of like good and evil and not understand that. Like, sometimes I just feel like filmmakers want religion to be something that's not nuanced because maybe of like pent up anger or resentment toward organized religion and using it as a cudgel to sort of say something just blanket and mean-spirited about a lot of people who do have faith. So I was concerned about that as the film progressed, and I was pleased by the way that it, I definitely didn't get the impression that the film is trying to say anything about like negative about faith. It's clearly showing the horrors and the abuses of like biblical literalism, which plainly means like cherry picking things out of the Bible or out of a sermon or what have you and using it to justify atrocity. That, that's a very simple concept, and I think it's really hard for a lot of movies to balance it very well. And the ones that do it pretty well, films like The Neon Bible, for instance, I really appreciate because it helps you distinguish between 
Um, moments when somebody like, for example, every preacher in this movie is pretty despicable. Um, even one that you don't think is very despicable on the surface, the the film finds a way to be like, no, 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 he was terrible too. Um, or not terrible, but um, clearly he had his own demons, right? And from that angle, I thought the takeaway uh, was very, very impressive in how it wraps up Arvin's story, for example, and where he sort of has to go in order to make peace with his own hangups, because I can't imagine growing up like he does with a father who takes these biblical lessons to their extreme. And and the last thing I'll say too is the I think the the only the only like good Christians, quote unquote, uh, are his like aunt and his aunt. I was gonna say aunt aunt and uncle, but um, his grandmother, I should say, because she was the grandmother, I believe. Yeah, and I actually I wanted to jump in on that because you you mentioned that the. Uh your extra milestone podcast, they're talking about uh, the night of the hunter in their, their new episode, which happens to be one of my favorite movies for, uh, for, for very similar reasons to the, the reasons that I was interested in the, the portrayal of religion in this film too. Um, that it's both are kind of depicting a very specific kind of, of religion that feels specific to kind of rural regions. And I think also portraying the kind of trauma that it can inflict on on certain people, particularly young people, uh, and the way that they have to kind of reckon with kind of the the faith of their of their culture, of their families, and how that has changed. Uh, and I think I think you're right, uh, John, that I think it it wraps up very very nicely in Arvin's story, where by the end of the film, we're kind of seeing him at a crossroads, and you're not really sure where his story is going to go. But given the experience that he just had where he kind of reconciles his his father's actions, I think kind of puts him in an interesting place moving forward to the point where you think he he might just be slightly more well-balanced because of what he's gone through. Yeah. I have to say, I'm still processing this movie. I have not figured it out. Like, I'm still processing what it says about suicide as well. But that plays into, as we, we can get into our final thoughts, just I think the film's dense thematic energy is so fascinating to me but let's get into our final thoughts and grades um we can start with you will ashton it seems like you're not as positive on the film but it sounds like you know you there were things you liked some things though that you want to bring up that uh kind of brought the film down a little bit for you i mean well to go off your conversation about religion i do want to add one thing which is that i did notice that i mean i haven't read a ton of reviews but i have read some where they were talking about like, oh, like this movie is all about like God is dead and the devil is around because I guess maybe they take the title very literally. Yeah. And I was like, I never really got that vibe because there is like some sense of morality to the film, like as far as like the characters, like there is like a sense of justice throughout for another of them. And there is like a like a theme of religion being used in the ways that you, you two mentioned. So I just wanted to add that as well. But in any case, as far as the movie itself, yeah, I mean. It's not that I think Antonio's intent is ever to be like, let's make a movie as like dark as possible or like anything like that. I just think that because the style gets so like kind of like jumbled with the multiple storylines and that we don't really get to see the full nuance of some of the things that are explored here. And there are a lot of very heavy things, like you said, like suicide and then like, you know, murder and assault and all these things. And that when we don't really fully get the time to like really extend them and only really kind of just like get the like kits of them as far as like just like back to back to back. I do kind of feel like that that takes away like some of the more like thoughtfulness that I think was intended here as far as the approach. And I think that's where I was going with before, where it just feels like when we don't fully get the breadth of that and we don't really get to like see a lot of the grieving beyond like just like kind of snippets, I feel like that 
makes it a little bit hard to connect beyond the bleakness as far as the story itself. But I do appreciate to the extent that I do think, you know, as an adaptation, as far as like getting the tone and the sense of place and the mood of it, and I do really appreciate the narration as well. And I am curious to check out the author's work because I do, I can see like, as far as like the broad approach to the narrative, like I do appreciate what he's going for. And I think there is a lot of respect paid there as far as like, you know, getting his words in and kind of like setting his style and his tone throughout. And I think it is respectful in that sense. But as far as the movie itself, like I think... There's a lot to value here. And I, I, I similar to you too, I'm still thinking about it because I just finished it earlier today. So um, my thoughts are still fresh on it. I might go back and forth, either good or bad. But I think it is pretty good for what it is. Like, I don't dislike the film per se. I just feel like there's a stronger film here that maybe just got a little bit too uh, edited down or like maybe in the like post-production process, maybe got a little bit too jumbled to a point where we don't fully get the the nuance of the characters and the full extent of their inner lives. But I mean, you know, it is a solid film as far as uh, all the technical stuff. And I do I do appreciate the performances, uh, even though people are giving Pattinson a lot of slack. I, I thought he was a lot of fun in this. And uh, Same. <laughs> I enjoyed his weird little uh, Southern accent. I thought it fit the character well as far as like this, uh, you know, uh, faulty priest with a like radio background. I don't know. I thought the voice was fine. I don't I don't really get all the beef with it. But Twitter is going to be Twitter, I guess. But in any case, I mean, I'd give it I'd say maybe like a low B minus just because like, I do appreciate what he's going for here. And it's not. I don't think it's bad. I just think there's a better film here that doesn't fully come out. All right. Low B minus from Will. All right, Abby, what, what about you? What's your, your final thought and your grade on this one? Uh, yeah, it's it's a little difficult for me to to figure out like a solid. I, I wobble between B and B minus because uh, I like the themes of the film a lot. I think the aesthetics are great. Uh, I think the soundtrack is great. There's a lot that it does very well. Um, but I think formally there's some bits that don't quite cohere there are some characters that don't really get the attention that they need uh and end up feeling kind of ancillary to the plot and really kind of unnecessary in the film as a whole uh i feel like it could do with a little uh a a different organization style i i still think that it probably has enough content that it would have worked better as like a mini series instead of a 138 minute movie where nobody really gets quite the time they need to kind of breathe and fully develop. So I would say like a low B or a high B minus is kind of where I'm sitting. All right. Yeah, we'll finish with me. I'm certainly the more positive on this one. And I'll, I'll say I like everybody in this, you know, Robert Pattinson and um, in particular and Tom Holland for sure. I, I have to say, I, I think what really makes this film work for me is I found it to be very escapist in a very weird way. And I think the reason I didn't feel like oppressed by it or I didn't feel like the the bleakness was bringing me down is because this film does what I think real life can't do, and that's provide an actual sense of justice to a disorganized world. Because in the way that a book can put you in the mind's eye of the author or it can give you a bird's eye view of everything, the film is sort of about how you know everything as it is perceived in real life, can be very nuanced. You know, if you looked at this series of events involving Arvin and his father and his family, a lot of the truth of what really happened would be hidden in real life because we can't rely on each other. We can't rely on oral history to really give us an honest account. But I think that's where the religious takeaway comes into it. And it says, if you believe in the tenets of religion, then you can believe in something as freeing as true justice Um, without guilt or without blaming the people bringing on justice in their own way. And I think the film 
fully succeeds in my eye of bringing that out. And I guess like after watching the movie, I did feel in a weird way good. I don't know why, but I, I just felt like I had seen something take place that um, involved a kind of comeuppance for certain characters that I felt were are in our real life. And it can be infuriating and frustrating sometimes when it feels like bad things just happen and nobody is there to correct the record. But uh, I think the film and the book probably apparently by extension is able to get that across. So uh, this is a film I've liked more and more of the last week since seeing it, even after reading some negative reviews, I, I think I still really, really enjoy it. And I think uh, if it would, if it weren't for like the some of the incoherence and and some of the ways that I think that the film sort of really comes down on female characters in some jarring ways, uh, and I think that can really bring the film down for a lot of viewers, then I would say this is a must watch. But as it is, I'm a, I'm a pretty solid B plus. I think that this is definitely worth recommending, even though I do understand it's pretty divisive. I think a lot of people will watch it and not like it as much as I do, but I think some people will probably like it even more than me. Yeah, that's I'm I'm glad that you were so positive on it. I came in thinking I was going to have to go to the mat for this between <laughs> both of you. And I'm very glad that you liked it even more than I did. So uh, great. <laughs> I love it when that happens. It's always fun. That is The Devil of the Time. It's now on Netflix. Uh, longer discussion than I thought we would have, but I guess I should have expected considering it's a pretty dense film. But let's talk about a film that is maybe going to be a little bit more uh, positive between us. I know I'm more positive on this film, The Nest. And I'm so excited to talk about this one. This is from Sean Durkin, who wrote and yeah. directed uh, Martha, Martha Marcy May Marlene, tongue twister. And a frequent collaborator of Antonio Campos. Uh, yeah. And uh, it, it's kind of interesting. They have competing films this week. And yeah. uh, this one um, is from IFC. And I have to say, it's been a long time. I've I've been wanting some Sean Durkin uh, movie magic for, I feels like, has it been nine years? I think, yeah, 2011. Well, that said, uh, his new film is kind of similar in some ways. Uh, we have another film where a blonde woman is married to a British guy. <laughs> I guess that's where the similarities mostly kind of end. Although both films, what they have in common is they are a lot about homes and the buildings we inhabit and what our family culture informs about us and how it shapes us and different things like that. So let's talk about this. This movie stars Jude Law uh, as a... British man who now lives in America, which I guess we could say with Sean Durkin is sort of biographical, similar to the uh, the side character in his previous film, where because I think Sean Durkin himself, like he was born in Canada and then he lived in England and then he moved to New York. That's kind of why his films tend to share a lot of uh, DNA between New York and England. In this case, Jude Law is the stepfather of uh, Carrie Coon's daughter, teenage daughter, and then the biological father of their child together. And they live this kind of a fascinating life, or fascinating from the outside. It looks like they're very happy. They have a nice house. Uh, he is a like finance broker. She is a horse trainer, kind of has this nice equestrian lifestyle. Then he decides that, no, we got we have to move to England because it's the late 1980s and there's a lot of financial opportunity there. Uh, he kind of describes their current situation as a bit dried up. Now, Carrie Coon is pretty hesitant about this. They've moved a lot in the last 10 years, but she goes along with it. 
and they get into this weird mansion that feels way too big for them, very uncomfortable. And then we start to navigate some of the actual problems behind this family life, the ones that are bubbling under the surface. We don't see them at first. And ultimately, this is a film that kind of starts with, this is the Jude Law movie. He is in power and control of this movie. But like the characters, Carrie Coon becomes the film's centerpiece and really takes over. So I want to start with you, Will Ashton. Uh, the Nest. I know you just watched this. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about this one because I think you're, yeah, it sounds like you're a fan of the filmmaker as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm a fan of uh, both theirs. I think there's a third one, Josh Men. They they have a company, I think it's like Borderline Films that they make, like, and, they, and they're very collaborative with each other's films. So like you said, it's very strange for me uh, to <laughs> talk about these films back to back in that sense, uh, as though they might be competing. But um, yeah, th- as far as the filmmaker himself, yeah, I'm a big fan of Marthy, Martha Marcy Mailer Lean. And I was uh, really looking forward to this when they announced at Sundance. I remember when you went and you were like just talking about some of the films that would be playing. You were like, hey, if you heard anything, and I was like, hey, you should check out The Nest. Like, this is like a big one. I guess for some reason you didn't get a chance to see it. It, it was a hot commodity. I wasn't able to yeah. catch the screening. Well, that makes sense. You know, everyone wants to check out the new Jude Law pick, which, you know, is understandable for many respects. And uh, he's I think it was more recently. about Durkin because of his history yeah. of Sundance. I think people were expecting this to be really good. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if it attracted as much buzz as I anticipated, but no, I do agree with you that the film itself, like I think... Not only is this maybe as good as Martha Marcy May Learning, it might even be a little bit better just because it is a little bit more confident and it does continue those themes that you're talking about, but in a way that does feel a little bit more settled and a little bit more like uh, in tune with what he's trying to say. And I do think that what really impressed me is that like the story itself is rather straightforward. Like if you just like kind of broke it down and like a like kind of traditional, like this is what happens, this is what happens. It's a fairly, maybe not conventional, but fairly, you know, uh, expected sort of turn of events, but the the execution of it has this kind of like lo-fi horror vibe to it throughout. That's like it doesn't really feel like there's like something like horrendous going to happen. Like there's not like a boogeyman that's going to come out and like attack them. But there's like this like growing sense that like something is vacant and like something is like absent. And there's a, this kind of dread of like what's going to happen that's going to like make things bad because it's not like things are good now, but it's going to get worse as they go along. And I do really appreciate that style where he does, in addition to the score, which kind of amplifies that feel as well, where it, it does maybe feel a little bit style driven over narrative at times, but I, it does bring that sense of like uh, intensity and it does kind of help the like underlying current of these emotions for these characters come out in a really effective and investing way. And uh, by the end of it, I was very uh, taken by it for sure. I have to say, yeah, it's kind of like what you said. It's like a horror setup without the actual horror <laughs> just mm-hmm. because it's you know it, it is kind of how a horror movie would usually start as like right. this sort of uh overly ambitious father patriarch character moves the family in and the wife is the only one who's like something's wrong with this i don't i don't know about this but <laughs> it, it but it doesn't actually go into that territory it's really a domestic thriller but all right abby olchesi what did you think of the nest um it's interesting that you guys talked about it as having a lot of aesthetics of horror but not the uh not the actual plot of a, a horror film, because I, I felt the same way. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with these kind of extended, uh, often exterior shots that uh, that Durkin has <laughs> of the various houses that the characters live in, where like you're expecting something to happen. And it's, it's very voyeuristic, which I think uh, also shares that in common with a lot of horror. Uh, and I think is also very appropriate to the film where you're, you're getting this, this uh, very intimate and kind of warts and all mostly warts um, portrait of, uh, of this family. And, uh, and, and some of it really is kind of from, from like a domestic standpoint, 
pretty horrific. Like it's, it seems, they seem very happy at the beginning of the film. Um, but, uh, I think another thing that he does very well is, um, kind of very economically, uh, describe kind of what the story is going to be and what certain characteristics of these characters are both for good and for ill, which I think is another thing that, that good horror movies also do actually. Um, so in like the first section of the film, when we see the family together and they seem pretty functional and happy and interesting, there's, there's a pretty telling moment where I think after school, Jude Law and his son and his son's friend are playing soccer in the backyard. And, uh, it's like down to, I think the final goal between them, the next goal wins and, and Jude Law wins. Like he doesn't let his kid win. He wins and declares himself like champion of the house and is very excited about it. And I feel like yeah. that tells you all you need to know about his character, that he will do anything to win at any cost by his own metric. Um, and that ends up being a pretty strong characterization of him throughout the film. And it ends up being kind of his, his emotional downfall as well. And also, I think even even like the font of the title, like told me everything that I needed to know about the era in which the movie was set. And I was like, I'm going uh -huh. to expect these aesthetics based on that. And I was right. Um, and so I think that's uh, on the whole, a very interesting way of, of approaching making a movie like that is he sets up um, the characters and their foibles and the expectations that you can have of it kind of right from the start. And it pretty much adheres to those, like not in a bad way, but in like a very impressive way that. Um, kind of reminds me almost of the way that somebody would write like a novel or like I said, make a really good horror movie. It's all kind of laid out right there and you get to see how it plays out. Yeah. This, this film is stuffed with really just subtle, but effective ways of telling you about these characters without exposition. For example, how the kids address the father, Rory, uh, played by Jude Law in the very beginning. One of them calls him dad. One of them calls him Rory. And that's all you need to know. That's it that you understand the family dynamic instantly. And it's so effective in bringing that out without beating you over the head with the situation this family is in. Yes. And the music also in this film, the the hair, the, the costume design, all of it tells you the era without anybody having to say anything like, oh my gosh, well, it's 1988. What do you expect? You know, stuff like that. It's just able time to, to sort alive. of- <laughs> sure. Uh, but I think before any of us were alive, uh, I think I was still two years away. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I, I'm definitely a fan of how this film really puts you in the heads of its characters. And I think where the horror stuff comes in, I, every time it feels like it's getting into that paranoia, I think we're supposed to be in the heads of the two kids because it's almost like their paranoia and frustration with their parents just. Uh, dysfunction is manifesting as horror. There's even a scene where the youngest one played by Charlie Shotwell, he he's scared of this house. He says it. He doesn't want to be alone in it. He has to run to his room because he doesn't feel safe. And it seems like the horror that he's seeing is it's not literal, but he is feeling scared of what's going on with the parents because he knows they're fighting. He knows that they are coming apart due to the deceptions of Jude Law. And it's sort of a little treatise on how family life from the child's perspective can be scary. Uh, I do want to say this film, it's it's so weird because the plot is very simple. It's a simple story. You can kind of see where it's going. And yet for some weird reason, it's still so effective. I think on the weight of the filmmaking and the performances here, I think that Jude Law and Carrie Coon, I'm, I'm so excited to see Carrie Coon really being given her due. This is an actor who you might not have realized it, but she was one of the sort of 
bit villains in Avengers Endgame, right? But she's been in so many good things from like Gone Girl and um oh gosh, what was uh she she was a side character in um a film uh who's who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Was that it? Um, oh, that was on the stage, though, I should say. But then also Fargo. I know a lot of people. Yeah, I was going to say season it. three of Fargo was a big one. And then The Leftovers on HBO. Yeah, I was also thinking of um, Widows and The Post. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's never in like center stage, but I think she is an actor who deserves to be um, considering she is extremely good. And I think this film will hopefully raise her profile in a lot of good ways. But yeah, Will, what, what did you think of uh, Carrie Coon in this, Jude Law, these performances in general? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they're both very good. Um, my only my only complaint would be that I think there isn't maybe enough time with Carrie Coon. Like, I think I wanted to know more about her character as a person. Like, it kind of felt like her escalation was kind of happening a lot, like away from the screen. I kind of wanted to spend more time with her because she is such a kind of more like inward character where like the emotions are kind of bubbling out over time. Whereas like Jude Law, like he just like says everything bluntly. So it felt like I kind of wanted more time like spent with her and maybe less with Jude Law, even though I do think Jude Law is very good in this. Like I kind of wanted to see more of her like progression to like the end point and get to know more about her as a person. Interesting. But as, as far as the performance itself, I thought it was very good. I, I want to jump on that and see what you think, Abby, because I actually think we do get to know her quite a bit, or at least I did, but not through a lot of like, you know, dialogue, but through her actions. I learned so much about who this person is through the way that she um, through her facial expressions, the way when she realizes something Jude Law's character said is a complete farce to when she is vindictive and passive aggressive toward him. And particularly at the end of the movie, I don't know. I felt like I did get to know this character, but I guess in a different way. I mean, I do get to know her, but like, I just felt like there's more time we could have spent where we like kind of see that progression. But I do agree. Yeah, I I think I would I would agree a little bit with both of you, I think, uh, in that I think that there are a lot of things that tell us about her character on kind of a deeper level. Um, I think it's really telling the fact that she has uh, like actual cash squirreled away somewhere in the house, um, which at the time when you see it the first time, I, I thought of it as like she's trying to escape. But really, I think that's more of a survival tactic that I think the more you learn about her character, the more you realize that that was something that she had to do at a specific point in her life that she's never stopped doing, um, which I think is a a fascinating little insight. But I also think that um, it feels like some of her character escalation happens fairly suddenly with a, with a like surrounded centered on a very specific event that occurs that is kind of sad, but also emblematic of other things that are going on in her life. Um, And I feel like it kind of escalates very quickly from there, but for the most part, I thought it was pretty well balanced and I think it focuses on her a pretty fair amount of the time. I feel like both she and, and Jude Law get sort of an equal amount of character exploration. I, I think what I might've liked to have seen a little bit more, uh, John, especially since you mentioned kind of having it be sort of an existential horror movie kind of on the part of the kids is, is seeing a little bit more of them, especially since, um, the, the daughter has kind of, um, a negative character progression, uh, that ends up taking, uh, a pretty significant chunk of the the end of the film. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of kind of what their experiences might have been apart from their parents. Yeah, I would have I would have liked more of her in the film, if only so we could keep listening to her taste in music. That's pretty strong. But uh, what would you say, Will? Yeah, I mean, I was actually kind of surprised uh, that we didn't spend more time with the son because it felt like the son was meant to be somewhat autobiographical for the filmmaker. I don't know if this is meant to be an autobiographical film, but like you were saying before, like, 
that like kind of like displacement that the character feels throughout where he doesn't really feel like comfortable at school. He doesn't feel comfortable uh, in this new house and stuff. And I, I, I felt like we got, like, you know, obviously we got enough. That I feel like we get the picture here, but like, I do kind of feel like uh, their stories, uh, both the son and the daughter were kind of a uh, put to the side different points of the film as well in a way that like, I don't think it's ineffective, but I do kind of want to know more about their story as well. And I, I, I felt like, the only thing I'm really asking this movie is more. So I don't think it's a bad thing altogether. <laughs> it's a good thing, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I want to say that I thought the sibling dynamic actually was pretty spot on in my perspective as somebody who had a, you know, I, when my older sister was in, was a, more of a teenager and I wasn't quite yet that tension, but that's still like you feel drawn to them. You feel safe around them because they're the only person close to your age to help you sort of navigate how complicated life is becoming but they shut you out because you're a teenager and they don't want you around. And, but at the same time, they still love you. And that still comes out once in a while. It's not like the, per, the sibling totally hates you. I, I thought that was actually a pretty subtle thing. And I do agree with both of you that, yeah, it does feel like the, the sister's perspective was a little muffled at times, or maybe it had been cut out where it could have been a little bit more effective or a little bit more part of the ongoing narrative, but okay. Seems like we all like The Nest quite a bit. I really like this film. I, I think this film is just so effective in what it's trying to say, how it says it, how its characters come to life. I have very few flaws. I think the only things that I would say that, yeah, I guess similar to you all, I did want a little bit more. I was kind of sad when it ended, even though I did really appreciate the ending. I wish we could talk about it. I thought the ending kind of floored me a bit, but I guess we can say our final thought on it and wrap it up with a grade. We can start with you Abby Olchessi, The Nest. How would, how would you grade this one? And yeah, what else what, what else would you add that we haven't brought up already? I actually, I, I want to note that I've started to like the movie even more just by talking to both of you about it and kind of unpacking it stylistically. Um, I don't know that I have a ton more to add. I do agree that the the ending feels kind of abrupt. I wouldn't say that it's bad, but it was a little surprising that it doesn't continue from there. And I think that's also kind of a testament to kind of what's been going on right before that and how intense it was and how much we care about the progression of each of those characters. Um, I feel like Jude Law especially is kind of at a point, kind of, kind of like the devil all the time, actually, where you're not sure what's going to happen next, but he seems like he might be at the point of some significant growth. Um, I think I would probably give this a um, like high B plus or low A minus. The only, the only thing that's keeping me from giving it like a solid high grade is that it is so subtle. And I think if you go into it expecting a really intense and um, kind of forward momentum drama, that's not what you're going to get. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily disappointing. It's just, it's a little hard to kind of wrap your head around how exactly you feel about it. So I, I think I'll, I'll go with an A minus. All right. A minus from Abby. What about you, Will? Uh, yeah, I mean, as far as the ending itself, without getting into spoilers, like I knew from Martha Marcy May Marlene that he loves ambiguous endings. And that, if anything, I felt like this ending was kind of more conclusive than I was anticipating going into this, even though it does end on a note where it's like, OK, yeah, like, you know, certain uh, things are going to happen from here that we don't know. We'll probably never know. But in any case, yeah, I mean, I, I do appreciate the ending. I think I'm, I'm all for that. I, I think my complaints ultimately come more from, I guess, like the middle section where I felt like some things could have been maybe a little bit more drawn out. Like maybe we could have spent a little bit more time getting to know some of the other people in the family, like the, the daughter and the son. And to an extent, I think the, the wife, uh, I do agree that um, what you were saying, Abby, I think it's just that, that turn where it just very abrupt. And it does kind of just feel like, okay, like maybe if there's like more two scenes here where like we kind of got to that point, like I, I might've 
been like fully floored by that. But I do really like the movie overall. I, I do think this is probably one of my favorites I've seen so far this year just because of uh, how much this is so like kind of simple in its approach. But there's so much to unpack as far as like what uh, Sean Durkin is doing stylistically and how he is approaching the narrative in a subtle yet very uh, specific sort of way that I, I just felt like a very well-rounded good film. And like I said before, all I'm really asking is more. So that's not a bad place to leave a film uh, as far as like, you know, like appreciating what you got. But just like if, if anything, just kind of wanting more time with these characters and getting more time with uh, with their lives and getting to know them uh, deeper level. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a very high B plus on this one. And I liked it a good bit. All right. So high B plus from well, I'm a very high A minus, almost an A. And I think the reason this film just really got to me and uh, I promise I'm not gonna be this positive the whole show, but I guess we only have one movie left. But I just see this as a really effective cautionary tale. And I love when movies like this or movies are used in this way to break down sort of complicated concepts that are hard to talk about, but doing it through the illustrative power of film in order to kind of instruct and kind of educate people who might find the central message of this film debatable. And I think that central message is about how the way like this character, this Jude Law character is not very different from a lot of people I know. And it's not very different from like my own shortcomings as a person. And I think people should watch this movie and be honest about how much they have in common with this Jude Law character. They may not be the extreme of it. They may not be thoroughly deceptive in every avenue of their life. But I do think everybody is guilty to some extent of lying in very small ways and doing just enough truth-telling around those lies to prevent people from figuring it out. But the film is really about how all of that, they add up over time. And they change who you are. You get the sense that he wasn't always like this. At one point, he, he might have just been a little light here, a little light there, just to make himself feel better. Um, and it, the, the movie gets to that. It gets to the way that he lies in order because it makes him feel good about having a, a poor childhood. And like the little lies of like, yeah, I have two kids. Even though he doesn't acknowledge his teenage stepdaughter the entire movie. You know, there are little moments where you get the sense that he doesn't really see her as his kid, but he's willing to sort of say that small little like deception is more of what it is in order to tell this stranger cab driver a story about himself. And so that's the thing that I think is so effective about this. I mean, it just it shows you too how when you take on this as a lifestyle and I, I've seen it happen to people, people aren't able to like love you because they're not able to, I think in Carrie Coon's case, they're not able to know who you are. They see everything you do as a performance. And I think this film just so, uh, it's so good at like getting that message across in a, in a well-packaged, like you said, well, well-rounded way. Um, and I, I thought that it was uh, it was a nice wake up call too of, you know, f- falling away from those little moments that can ladder up to a worse situation, which is where I think this movie lands. So yeah, high A minus for me. Well, I'm glad you got some good three therapy out of this, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I shouldn't say that I'm like the Jude Law character in any way. But like I said, I think that everybody to some extent can sort of relate with, you know, like little white lies. But then I, I thought, yeah, I thought this was a helpful reminder of like, yeah, you really have to watch that. And you really have to make sure that you have to own up to it when you make that mistake and correct it. Because if you don't, then 
down the road, you know, because it's not like this film happens at the beginning of their relationship. It's 10, 15 years into their marriage and we see the effects of it. So, and you can't always expect people to forgive you. Um, and the last thing I'll say too is her reaction is passive aggression. And I think films usually villainize or vilify passive aggression for good reasons, because it's, it's obviously something that can get in the way of a healthy relationship. But I have like when that has come up in movies before, I have thought to myself, you know, sometimes it is justified. And sometimes even though what the person is doing in that situation isn't best for the relationship, it is a reaction. It is a reasonable reaction to something else that is wrong in the relationship. So I did appreciate that Durkin is trying to show you the the nuances of that sort of dynamic of the person who feels like there's nothing else I can do but be passive aggressive. Because when I am blunt, when I am saying exactly what's wrong, that's not creating growth in the Jude Law character, to, to say a term that you used, Abby, I think his growth comes from certain things that she has to do to really wake him up. So yeah, that's that's how I feel about The Nest. <laughs> uh, sorry, that was a lot. Uh, the Nest, like I said, IFC, it is available to stream on demand, I want to say, or is it just in theaters? I actually forget. I think it's VOD. Okay. Well, I think it's... Uh... Um, either way. <laughs> I think it's in theaters now and then it goes on VOD in October, I believe is what the deal was. Okay. Yeah. I that can't keep sense. it straight. Yeah. It seems every movie has like a totally different thing. So if that's the case, um, I'd say don't see this in a theater necessarily just because I don't think the risk, um, that's just my personal opinion. Uh, just wait. I think it's definitely worth renting or blind buying on video on demand, however you prefer to do that. I just looked it up. It's November 17th. It's not, it's, it's when it's on VOD. <laughs> so you got a while to wait, I guess. So, Antebellum, Abby, you're the only one who saw this. This is a solo review for you. I don't know too much about this. I didn't even watch the trailer because I was looking forward to it just from you knowing Janelle Monet is involved. This is, uh, you know, from the producers of Get Out. So, yeah, what is Antebellum about? Who else is in it? And uh, I want to know what you thought of it. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, this is going to be an exciting one to just, just talk about on my own. Um <laughs> So uh, Antebellum is from uh, Gerard Bush and Christopher Renz, who I think have done more kind of photography and advertising work up to this point, uh, and but have have a filmmaking background. Um, this, is, and, this is their first feature film directing, right? Yes. Yeah. First feature film. Um, and it stars Janelle Monet, uh, And it kind of takes place in... Um, it, it occurs over like three separate sections. I'll say that. Uh, the first section takes place on a, um, what seems to be a Southern plantation um, in the middle of the civil war. And um, that kind of goes along with all of the horrible treatment of, of enslaved people, as you might think. Um, and, and starts with a pretty, a pretty violent and awful thing where uh, three escaped slaves of which Janelle Monet's character is one are being brought back to the plantation. And you kind of get the sense that this is not exactly the situation that you think it is, um, kind of the further in that it goes. Uh, so Janelle Monet's character, uh, Eden is her, her slave name, um, is kind of taken to a separate kind of jail location, basically, and branded so that she won't try to escape again. Um, and she's, she's pretty, she's pretty shaken up by the experience and she still wants to try and escape enslavement, but is not sure how that's going to happen or when. And she's kind of galvanized by the arrival of a new group of slaves, one of whom is, uh, played by Kiersey Clemens. Um, and the way that Kiersey Clemens talks to Janelle Monet 
you get the sense that there's there's something going on that she knows who she is, but she's not um, like she's she's a pretty well known figure. She's not actually a slave. Um, and then that kind of leads us into the the second part of the film in which um, a uh, a woman, uh, Veronica, again, Monet, Janelle Monet, uh, who is a well-known uh, kind of activist and writer, is going to a conference to um, kind of do a presentation related to a book of hers that's just come out. And she has like a, a husband and a daughter who she loves. She lives a, a pretty nice um I'd say kind of wealthy life. She seems to have a lot of money. Um, and so while she's at the conference, she goes out to dinner with um, two friends, which leads to a kind of frightening series of events that lead into the third act of the film in which um, Eden kind of leads a leads a revolt and and escapes. Um, I'm, I'm going to try not to ruin the the twist and turns of the plot for those who still want to kind of figure that out on their own um it's i i would say that if you have seen the trailer you probably have a pretty solid idea of of what to expect even though it's not really revealed there either but um it it goes kind of where you'd think it would go um i think that there are um definitely more interesting ways that it could have gone um i would direct people to check out uh, Angelica Jade Bastian's uh, review of the movie on uh, on Vulture, which I think is is a pretty good indicator of of what the movie doesn't do very well. Um, I yeah the uh, the end twist of the movie is really not um, it's not as original or as clever as the directors would like you to think that it is or as they think that it is, um, and it brings to mind a lot of elements that are kind of problematic in the way that they treat their characters, the more that you think about it. Um, and I think it, um, and I, I don't think that this is unfair to say. <laughs> um, I think the, the way that it is revealed what's actually going on and who the slaves at this plantation are and, and what they have been before. Um, I think what it does is put them in a situation where it strips them of, um, of their agency basically uh, and kind of puts them into roles that they just sort of blindly assume where um, the more that you think about the movie, the more that the characters, the more that you know about the characters who are there, the less that makes sense. And I think that was kind of my major issue with the movie. Um, there's also a fair amount of um, extreme violence against women. And for the first parts of it, as awful as that is, you kind of understand a little bit why it's there. Um, but once that gets stripped of its context of the context that it might've had, um, the feeling about that becomes very different. And so I'd say it's, it feels like a concept that is not really fully baked. It feels like something that someone might kind of present in like their first year of film school or at an MFA project where they say, here's the idea. The idea is racism is real bad. And this William Faulkner quote about the past not being dead and not even past is basically the entire concept of the film. And then kind of presenting that to a, like say a creative circle of friends who then like proceed to tear it apart completely. That's, that's sort of the way that it feels when you're watching the film. Thank you for coming to my Ted talk oh, again. Boy. 
Uh, so many fun <laughs> TED Talks from Abby now that she's joining Oh, the show. indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, like I said, I don't know what the twist is, but I've heard it compared to like even less insightful than some of the worst M. Night Shyamalan twists. So <laughs> I guess that's kind of where this film had me. Uh, I probably am not going to check it out at any point. But yeah, I, I just looked at the Rotten Tomato score. 28% of critics liked it pretty low out of 116 reviews. And that's, that's not good, uh, which I'm sad about because I'm a big fan, of course, of Gentleman A. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I didn't have any real expectations for this necessarily because I'm not familiar with these first-time feature filmmakers. But yeah, sad to hear that this one didn't quite, uh, didn't quite meet expectations. So yeah, I'm 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 disappointed as well because the uh, the early looks at it really seemed like it could be a fantastic kind of high concept thing that could go in a lot of different directions. But unfortunately, it kind of takes the most basic approach that it could. That's sad. What did you say your grade for this one was again? Uh, I would probably give this a uh, C minus. There are some some elements of it that are kind of pretty and well shot. I would say that the uh, the production value of it definitely is is very high, uh, but Pretty much everything surrounding it is is pretty hard to get behind. So yeah, I'd say a C minus. All right. Well, Antebellum is available to stream on demand. I'm not sure if to rent as well as buy, but this does not sound like a film you might want to take the risk of buying. <laughs> uh, if any of you see it and like it a little bit more, uh, I'm curious if anyone will comment and let us know because it definitely does not seem like this film is has a lot of fans so far. But our, our last review of the week is another film that is in limited release, but this one is actually going to be broadcast on MSNBC uh, in the beginning of October, October 9th. And that film is a new documentary from Don Porter called The Way I See It. Now, Don Porter made another sort of political documentary earlier this year, a tribute to John Lewis called John Lewis Good Trouble, which Will reviewed here on the show. And this is her next film. Uh, also a documentary, but this one centers around Pete Souza, who was the former chief official White House photographer during both the Obama administration and the Reagan administration. Uh, Laura Dern serves as one of the producers along with Don Porter. So the uh, first thing I want to say is that I actually follow, I've been following Pete Souza on Instagram for a few years, and that's kind of his claim or his rise to more fame than you would expect from a White House photographer. They, none of them tend to be like household names, for example. But a few years ago, he started doing this thing that raised his profile, which is he would post pictures on Instagram, sort of trolling the current president. Uh, so like if the president said something very like, like a, just lied about Barack Obama, he would post a photo that would just sort of show the, the nonsense of it, or like kind of, it would be like a reality check of like, you know, without having to say it overtly, he could sort of point to the Obama administration and be like, remember when we had a president who didn't create a stir every single day? Um, that's kind of his like brand. And because his Instagram really took off, he wrote a book called Shade, which sort of ties to the first time he did this. It had to do with the drapes that were chosen by the Trump administration. It sounds pettier than it is, I guess. But what I like about the documentary is that it kind of lays it out in a way that is pretty entertaining to watch how this guy sort of decided he needed to be a little bit more politically outspoken because his whole thing is that, you know, he served under Reagan, he served, uh, served under Obama, both of which are two of uh, probably the two most iconic presidents in modern American history since probably World War II, I would say. 
um, you know, unless you would, I guess you could say like John F. Kennedy or something like that. But if you, if you look at two of the most successful presidents in terms of even public image, I think Reagan and Obama are pretty high up there, if not the very highest. And that informs, I think, Pete Souza, who is a guy who thinks that beyond just like what you think is best for the country in terms of policy, there is like this sort of like moral uniting standard of behavior that a president should exhibit. And this movie is sort of about how he draws those similarities between Reagan and Obama. You find out how he got his start, how he got into both administrations, and then how he how he views the humanity of Obama. And it this this is another political documentary like ones we've talked this year that does it it is a bit of a puff piece right it isn't trying to critique or analyze or do anything with the obama administration that is all that insightful if you are already a fan of obama or if you cannot stand obama you are not going to get much out of this documentary unless you are feeling particularly open minded on the part of somebody who is politically against him or you're feeling like you just really nostalgic. Like you really just want to go back to the administration as an escape, which, okay, sure. But I, and even in that sense, I don't, I don't see this as a documentary that's going to do all that much for you. It's, it's one that's going to, it's not timeless in that sense. Like you're not going to come back to it. I think at any point, I think that in a lot of ways, the Obama administration for those folks sort of speaks to it, speaks for itself. But the reason the documentary worked for me is because I'm that rare bird of like, you know, during the Obama administration, I, I believed a lot of the the right wing um, fear mongering around this guy. And I, I didn't see him as this human family man who was just of an uh, utmost character and this guy who really had great intentions for the country. I, I thought he I thought he hated America. I thought he was this terrible person. But over the course of the administration, I realized that I was completely wrong about that, that I had been fed a story, fed a false narrative about somebody who, while not above reproach, and I'm still waiting for that documentary because I, I do want somebody who is more inclined to like be like, all right, here's where the Obama administration went wrong and where that party needs to correct their mistakes. I want that documentary. Uh, As far as I'm aware, it's not out yet. (laughs) And I would love to see it. But I think right now people are not in the mood for that because we have other problems to deal with if you're on that political side of the spectrum. But that said, for people like me who didn't vote for Obama either time, and by the end of his his administration and throughout the most recent one have figured out okay wow yeah there there is a complete difference between what we were told about this person versus what we're being told about this person this is a very helpful documentary in that sense it helped me learn a lot more about somebody that i had shut out um somebody that i just sort of dismissed for many years and ha- sort of started to come around to understanding you know and and feeling like i missed out a little bit on the people who during the obama administration um, felt that he was a really good leader and felt that he did provide a really good example, even if they did have some profound criticisms against him. So that's kind of what this documentary is, is getting at. And I think it's also pretty unique compared to some of the other election year documentaries. It's it's not kind of like the rah-rah, hashtag resist kind of documentary the whole time. Uh, it is actually uniquely told. It uses photographs and stills that are really well paced and edited in order to keep your attention and, and keep the energy moving and, and there, there's some charming sweet moments um but yeah if you're if you're looking for a more uh if you're looking for some like a documentary that's more neutral that's a little bit more of like fly on the wall that's not really what this is and um you might even be annoyed at some of the ways it does that same soft pedaling on the reagan administration right you know i could see a lot of people who are pretty far left watching this and being annoyed maybe at uh, how this 
how this sort of portrays Reagan himself. Although one thing that I, I do appreciate about this movie, I can't believe how brazen it is about showing how staged these photo ops are. Like we all know it, but I thought it was kind of, kind of interesting that they, you know, they drop the pretense a bit and be like, yeah, a lot of this stuff is completely staged and you know, it it's there to sort of per- continue a public image for the sake of it. And um, I, I did find that pretty fascinating. So I liked the way I see it. I would give it a B. I think that it's definitely worth checking out if you watch the trailer and you think that this is for you. But if yeah, if you're not a fan of the administration, this might just annoy you. So you may want to avoid it. And uh, yeah, this is from Focus Features. And like I said before, it's in some theaters right now um, as of uh, the 11th. And I think it was showing at Toronto. It premiered at Toronto, actually, the film festival. And uh, as of the 18th, it started a theatrical, limited theatrical release. But yeah, if you have MSNBC, and I should have said MSNBC Films helped produce this, they are going to be broadcasting the documentary on October 9th. That is the way I see it. Uh, I don't know, Abby and Will, if, if either of you are interested in it. I I can't say that I, I think that you have to rush out to see it. Um, but yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I'm I'm interested to see it now, uh, especially to hear you uh, to hear you talk about it. I I'm I've been a follower of Pete Souza on Instagram recently as well. Ah. So I yeah I think that that'll be an interesting, maybe not uh, galvanizing necessarily, but kind of an interesting peek behind the curtain. Fellow Souza holic, love it. This is one of the ones that was available for me at the Toronto International Film Festival, but knowing that it would be coming out in like a week or, or I guess now technically about like two or three weeks, but. I decided just not to watch it. And also just I wasn't really crazy about like I have nothing not to say anything about like Obama himself. Just like I just don't really have any interest right now in a documentary. It's just like, hey, Obama's cool. It's like, OK, fine. Like, I, I don't if the if people want that, it's fine. Like, I'm not uh, against that right now. But I mean, as far as like movie watching is concerned, it's not my main interest in a political <laughs> right, right. year. But, you know, I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad it's pretty good. So uh, that's what counts. All right. And with that, that's all the films. We did it. We talked about all of the movies, and here are some of the ones coming out next week. I think the big one, probably our featured review, is going to be Enola Holmes, which is going to be coming out on Netflix. It's based on a book, and it's kind of about the teenage sister of Sherlock Holmes. That one stars Millie Bobby Brown. I think, uh, Abby, you already checked this one out. I'm going to be seeing it later today, but uh, are you excited? to? I don't want to spoil what you think of it, but are you excited to talk about Enola Holmes? I am, yeah. I think it'll be a fun discussion. Yeah, one discussion I'm highly, highly anticipating is Kajillionaire, which I saw at Sundance and Will, I think you saw recently. I'm not sure, Abby, when you're going to check this one out, but this is the new Miranda July film starring Evan Rachel Wood and Richard Jenkins, Deborah Rea and Gina Rodriguez. One of my favorite films of the year, and I'm absolutely going to rewatch it because I have a suspicion that on second watch, this will become one of my favorite films of the year period. I'm looking forward to revisiting it for sure. And I don't want to spoil what Will thinks of the movie as well. You, will already did kind of tell me what he thought. Uh, those are the two big films. And then we have a couple other ones. Not sure if we're going to catch these. And uh, there's a new Disney Plus movie called Secret Society of Second Born Royals. It's something like the Disney Channel helped put together with them. So it's kind of like another, I don't know. To me, it looks like a Disney Channel original movie that they're putting on Disney Plus, basically. Uh, there's also Ava starring Jessica Chastain, which is kind of like an action thriller with a central female action hero. Uh, this It's directed by Tay Taylor and Matthew Newton, or written by Matthew Newton. I've heard it's pretty rough, but uh, I haven't heard anything yeah, yet. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I've just heard early things that weren't positive, but I don't know. I haven't seen the film myself. I'm not planning to see it. I'm not super interested uh, in the film itself. But and then last, there's uh, The Last Shift, which is supposed to be coming to some theaters. This is from Sony Pictures, 
releasing, and this one looks kind of interesting. It's a comedy written and directed by Andrew Cohn, his first film. And it's another film that stars Richard Jenkins. I was going to say two Richard Jenkins in one weekend. How yeah. about that? That's a lot of Richard Jenkins. I'm not complaining. Yeah. A couple of their films too. Like I, I really want to see softy this week, which uh, recently hit VOD and uh, that's a new documentary, another Sundance one. And uh, hopefully we'll get to residue, which is a new Netflix film that will brought to my attention uh, a little too late didn't have time to, to catch it, but it, it hit Netflix kind of quietly. And uh, well, I think you were saying like the reviews for it have been pretty strong. Yeah, I mean, at least critically, I don't know if it's getting quite as strong a audience response, but I know some of the critics I've seen, have been really, really fond of it. I know I think The Guardian gave it like five out of five stars. So it's apparently pretty good. Yeah. So again, that film is called Residue. And I think you can watch it right now on Netflix. We'll see if any of us see it, if we can include it to the lineup next week. But all right, that's what we have on deck for next week. From it for now, we will sign it off. Uh, thank you as always for listening. Links to everything we talked about are in the show notes as always. If you have to check out our social pages, if you would like to connect with us, um, that'll do it for us this week. From the internet, California, I am John Agron. From the internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. From the internet, Kansas City, I'm Abby Olchesi. See you next time.